You're listening to The Catholic Podcast. Welcome back to The Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Joe Heschmeyer. I'm joined with a good friend of mine, a priest of the Diocese of Sioux Falls, who's here to talk to us a little bit about his experience uh, with the abuse scandal. So, Father Joseph Schulten, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Joe. Uh, Father Joe, now how long uh, have you been ordained? Uh, A little more than two years. I was ordained June of 2017. So that's been a period, as anyone listening to this show knows, uh, marked with a lot of scandals, like a, a huge wave of abuse scandals that I think really probably the worst we've seen, I would argue, uh, since 2003, since the original yeah. kind of revelations of everything in Boston and then L.A. Uh, this has just been on a local, national, international level, I think pretty painful for people. So if I may, as a young priest um, whose ministry has kind of grown up alongside this, how has that impacted you? Yeah, um, yeah, it's definitely marked most of my experience of the the priesthood so far. It it didn't really um, these things didn't really come to light until uh, last summer, 2018, and so there was about a year of priesthood before this was all in the news in a big way. Um, and at first it kind of felt like, well, shoot, I just got here. <laughs> like, this is a terrible time to jump into the Catholic priesthood. Um, but deeper down in me, I uh, it just makes me, makes me want to be a good priest for people. Um, I can't say that I've any direct experience of... Um, of the scandals of, uh, you know, in terms of knowing somebody who was abused by a priest, knowing a priest who was involved in this sort of horrific uh, activity. Uh, but it definitely affects us all as as a church. And, you know, I don't think by any means that I or any priest or any of us as Catholics can just sidestep the issue and say it doesn't really pertain to us. Um, our diocese, uh, on the whole, is it's been very healthy. We haven't had to deal with a lot of this over the years, but but there have still been cases, and any case is uh, far too many. And uh, and certainly, even if it's not impacting us directly, like locally, it's on people's minds. It's it's uh, it's in the news, and um, it affects us in one way or another. So, so actually, on that note, with the way it's affecting people around you, how have you seen, if you have seen? differences in the way people approach you or treat you or maybe speak to and about priesthood with you? Yeah, I, I think that um, it's. I haven't experienced anything sort of uh, violent or any anger directed at me. Um, you know, other places I know my brother priests do experience that. Um, kind of a, just a, people, people are angry and, um, and naturally, you know, that some of that comes out directed at even even good priests, um, but that's to be expected. Uh, I would say more in terms of avoidance, and so uh, yeah, numbers mean, are numbers mean? are a little bit down in terms of mass attendance, not nearly as much as places um, like parts of Pennsylvania and things where they're more directly affected. Um, collections, obviously, you know, you're less like, people are less eager to give to the church when it's uh, when it's seen in such a bad light and, and misuse of uh, 
of church's resources and abuse of people comes to light. Um, and so that's, that's down a little bit. Um, so you're saying that's down just this year? I think across, yeah, yeah, across the, across the board around the country. Um, numbers of vocations, uh, we have the, the fewest seminarians in our diocese that we have for a long time. And I don't think that's entirely due to the scandals, you know, the numbers of pictures on the vocations poster tends to ebb and flow, but, but I don't, I, I do think it's, it's correlated, um, the, and I understand. I mean, it's a very, it would be a very difficult time to decide to enter the seminary, even if a young man is feeling called when, when, uh, yeah, the, the, the darker side of, of the priesthood in the United States has come to light in such a noticeable way. So on the note of that kind of darker side, what have been maybe your takeaways in terms of just having processes, having experienced all of this um, from the perspective as, as a new priest, what are your thoughts in terms of, yeah, just how, how do we process this? How do we make sense of all of this? Yeah, I think um, I'll just share what's what's been helpful for me. Um, and I, I think the, the first instinct is, uh, you know, I want to be defensive or I want to point out like, hey, this isn't happening anymore, or hey, here are all the good things that the church has been doing to really keep people safe. Um, here is the way that that perpetrators are being dealt with and brought to justice. Um, and sort of take that defensive stance to immediately say, look, we're getting better. Like, we don't think this is acceptable either. Here's how we're responding. We're to make sure it never happens again. Um, or to play the the numbers game and say well if you look at you know public schools or if you look at this sector of society actually you know you're much more likely to get abused or you find abuse of minors and vulnerable persons in these places and so on the whole the church is 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 the safest place or, or whatever um and well you know those things are true i don't think that they're helpful and i don't think that they address the heart of the person who's struggling Either yeah. a person who has been abused or a person whose parish priest is is found guilty of uh, of these crimes or uh, or even a person who's just struggling to uh, to feel a part of the church and to uh, struggling over their belonging to this organization, to this um, community that uh, that is purportedly uh the, the, the body of Christ, it's the means of our salvation, the bearer of God's grace in the world, um, and yet obviously fails in such radical ways to live up to its call in, in her ministers, or at least a, you know, a number of them. And so I think that person who's struggling needs a different response. And it's, it, it's true to say, well, we're doing these things, we're trying to deal with it, we're, we're publishing names, um, we're trying to bring everything to the light. I don't think it's enough. So there's, I was just on a retreat this past weekend, and there was a really good insight that the priest on the retreat made about uh, looking at John 11 with the death of Lazarus mm. in seeing how Jesus is able to approach the same question in two radically different ways mm. based on the asker of the question or based on, you know. So Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus dies, and they send note to him, and he comes, and, and he's already dead. 
Martha, who is, you know, characterized as a more like active one, uh, probably more assertive, outgoing, extroverted, whatever. She comes out to him and she, she seems angry. She, she begins, Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus responds uh, by presenting himself as the resurrection and the life. And so she's, you know, she brings up kind of theological questions and he responds with theological answers. Hmm. Uh, but when he gets to Mary, Mary falls it in. She's like, she's weeping. And then she says the same thing. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, uh, he would not have died. But what's remarkable is that Jesus doesn't reply, you know, I'm the resurrection and the life. It says instead he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then we see him weep. And they say, see how he loved him. What's remarkable about that to me is that Jesus doesn't rush in with like a solution to the problem. Right. He recognizes the depth and the profundity of the emotion. Right. And instead he just enters into that space. Right. And so one of the things I'm hearing you say is that like, we are so quick to give these, if you will, Martha-esque kind of answers, which some people need and want. They want to say, like, how can we believe the church is the spotless bride of Christ and account for this behavior? Yeah. But other people, it's just like, no, they're hurting. And if you give, like, a, I mean, this is kind of simplistic, but a head answer to a hard question. Sure. Um, sure. You're, you're missing the mark. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful uh episode from the gospels to to illustrate what's necessary in this uh in this crisis uh that it's not enough to just give those answers but something more is needed and and the first thing is is compassion yeah christ is able to like you said enter into that place uh and literally yeah, compassion right right in suffering with, suffering, with, suffering yeah. with them jesus wept he weeps at the grave uh, of his friend Lazarus, he weeps with all those that are weeping, and especially as a priest, I'm just recognizing that people don't need me first and foremost to give those kinds of answers. They need me to weep with them. They need me to say that, yeah, I suffer over this too, and I do. I mean, I mean, I don't know how you can't, as a as a human being, to read about these things, ways that trust was broken, and and uh, and the most innocent, the the little ones to be who are who are abused, violated, that's, that's got to be deeply disturbing um, to anybody, and especially anybody who, who wears a collar as a priest, to, to think that, you know, somebody in my position could totally misuse uh, their, their role, their authority in the church um, in such a horrific, sick way. Um, that has to be moving, first and foremost. I have to be able to just express that compassion without getting defensive. Um, because it's easy to do, it's tempting to do. We, we're hurting too, and so we want to, to throw up these walls to keep us from being sort of exposed. Uh, but that's not the example, that's not the behavior we see in Christ in response to a tragedy. Um, but then the second thing that happens is that when he brings his presence, that compassionate presence, into a place of human suffering... He is able to bring about something new. He's able to bring about healing and new life, literally, in the case of Lazarus. And that's something that only he can do. Yeah. You know, so before the episode, we were talking a little bit. 
and you mentioned what sounded like a really powerful um, response to all of this from was it Father Jose Medina? Yeah, with Canadian yeah. Liberation. Yes. Yeah, so Can you I, share a little about that? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm um, I'm associated with the, the Catholic movement, Communion and Liberation, and and the uh, the guide to the movement in the United States, Father Jose Medina, and he was responding to the scandals in a um, sort of colloquium shortly after a lot of these things with with ex Cardinal McCarrick and the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report had come out and. And he, he posed the question, what's, what's a sufficient response uh, to a person who has been through abuse? Or what does a person need who has experienced this or whose loved one has experienced this or whose parish priest is, is accused of this? And, uh, and he went through the sorts of responses that I've just talked about, you know, quoting statistics or saying we'll do better or bringing people to justice. Uh, bringing bringing those who are guilty to appropriate punishment and, and offering some counseling and, and restitution to victims. Um, he brought all those up uh, and said they're not enough. Nothing there can undo what's happened. They're necessary, and I fully agree that all those things are necessary. We need justice. We need to pursue restitution. We need to work for you know for healing and for counseling and all those sorts of things. Uh, for victims, but they can't undo what's happened to you. Uh, they can't undo the sin of men who have sinned uh, against them. Only Christ can undo the effects of sin. Only the presence, the living presence of Jesus um, can raise the dead to life, as he does with Lazarus. Uh, only he can weave the deepest suffering and, and human sin into the story of salvation, which is precisely what he does through his death and resurrection. What does that look like? I mean, that was beautifully put. But I imagine there are probably some listeners saying, okay, great. And what, you know, how do I do that? Like, how right. do I bring Christ right. into that situation? Right. And I think, the, I think the first thing is to acknowledge our poverty and say, we can't. Mm. We can't do it. Uh, it requires the presence of another. It requires Jesus to be present in this situation. Um, what does that mean for how we live as a church? Well, I think it changes what we prioritize. I think it changes uh, our self-confidence um, and really challenges us and, and encourages us, urges us, shoves us toward uh, Christ confidence, if you will, to be confident that, that he is here, right? That he does live in this mm -hmm. church and he has promised to remain with it until the end of, the, end of time and that he will bring about, can bring about uh, salvation. Like it says in Hebrews, he's always able to to save those who approach the Father in his name, right? Uh, a lot of the time we speak about the church, and you kind of referred to this earlier, in um, these purely theological terms or, or in a kind of triumphalistic way, you know, yeah, and, and it's it's true. What scripture says about the church is true. It's, it's the spotless bride of the Lamb, like we hear in Revelation. It is... Uh, the, the pillar, pillar and bulwark of truth, like St. Paul says, uh, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Um, but why, why is that? What is it that, that gives the church that consistency, that solidity, that, that confidence? Well, uh, it's got to be him. It's got to be his real presence with us. Um, and, yeah. So there's a, a, one of the books I was reading on this retreat was... He Leadeth Me by Father Walter Chiswick. Hmm. 
And for those who aren't familiar, it's the story of a Jesuit priest who had a deep desire in his heart to go into Russia uh, during the days of the Soviet Union and bring God, uh, serve as a priest undercover and kind of minister to the people in an officially atheist country. But he goes, uh, it's kind of a complicated story as to how he ends up there. Uh, and he's shocked that people are just like unwilling and unable to talk publicly about religion or to even talk with him. Like, so he finds his own ministry compromised uh, severely by everyone just living in a state of terror and being unwilling to open up their hearts. He very quickly is discovered uh, by the secret police and is imprisoned. He spends about a year in solitary confinement awaiting trial uh, and then is sentenced to 15 years hard labor in Siberia. But during that first year when he's in solitary confinement, uh, he's it's basically just like extended psychological torture They'll come and do all night, like, interview sessions with him and everything else. At a certain point, he breaks, and he signs a document saying, basically, he's a Vatican spy and all this other stuff. That isn't even true. And But they've been, like, hounding him, and they won't even process him until he confesses. So he's just indefinitely in solitary confinement. Um, but his story behind it was basically, you know, he'd spent so long preparing for these kind of encounters and building up on a human level. The, the fortitude, he would undertake these extreme penances, and yeah, he was just yeah. naturally a very strong person to begin right. with. And so after he broke, there was a profound sense of shame and then soul-searching, and he realized that through this all, he'd been relying on his own gifts without relying on the giver of the gifts. That even, he was wanting to do a great thing for Christ rather than relying on Christ to do the great yeah. thing. And he learned in that experience to kind of trust the Holy Spirit, trust that these things that happen, as bad as they may be, God allows them to happen for a reason, and just to discern where is his will in this and respond. That even in the sense of the Soviets, like, oppressing him, God was able to use that for his own good. Not like God is punishing me with the Soviets, but like God wills my good even amidst this terrible situation. Uh, and so I, I was thinking, as you were saying this, like, as a church, we can we can become too self-reliant. As a church, right. it's not just individually, we can try to white-knuckle it and fight all the spiritual battles. Although anyone who's ever fought sin knows that temptation. But even as a church, we can try to solve all of this without a radical dependence on Christ. Right, and that's bound to fail or fall short of, of, uh, of what's needed. I think that's a really great example, like you said. Um, trying to to serve Christ without Christ. And we can try to fight for the church or defend the church in public against uh, accusations and and, um, and not acknowledge our real poverty, even as Christians, our, our dependence, our need for him. Um, and, and, you know, what you mentioned about uh, God using things, using suffering, using hardship uh, to bring about salvation to bring about our good is uh obviously i believe it's true i believe in a good god but um but to say that to say that to somebody who's suffering oh, yeah. obviously uh is itself almost scandalous right. right like to say that god somehow willed this and, and that's not what we mean and i, I know that's not right what either of us means you know that god wants 
abuse or anything. Like obviously not true, and that's contradicted throughout Scripture. How much God cares for the life of the little ones, and Jesus says, which is quoted a lot these days, um, "Woe to uh, you know temptations to sin, scandals are bound to come, but woe to the one through whom they come." It'd be better for him if a millstone were tied around his neck and he'd be thrown into the depths of the sea, right? And uh, and so obviously God is angered, if we can speak in those terms. You know, Jesus is certainly angered by the prospect of anybody sinning against um, little ones, innocent ones. But the good news is that uh, is that God can enter into that situation and redeem it, and that's what we mean by uh, God using all things, bringing, working all things for the good of those who love him, like it says in Romans. Um it I think th- I think there are two extremes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think on the one hand, you can fall into this trap of saying God wanted this to happen to you, and but what we mean by sin in the first place is to do something other than the will of contrary God. Contrary to God's yeah. So you can't say God wills something contrary to God's will. I think when you really get to the depth of it, it's incoherent. But He does permit violations of His will for the greater good. So if, if the one extreme is God wanted this to happen to you, the other extreme is this just happened, there's no good reason, and there's no meaning to it, and it becomes like the risk of totally meaningless suffering. Uh, so I think we have to find a way to avoid those two extremes without coming off in a kind of moralizing way. Right. And I think the only way one is able to do that is is to look to the cross, right? to look to the, the crucifixion, which is at the center of our faith, the worst thing that's ever happened to the most innocent person in human history. Um, this horrific sin. And yet through it, God proves his faithfulness. Uh, he proves his His love. You know, I've been struck a lot lately, this, this past year, by the Eucharistic prayers and the way that they refer to, uh, to Christ as the victim. Mm. Um, in the Roman canon, the, the first Eucharistic prayer, you know, this holy victim, this spotless victim, um, and in the other ones too, just this, and that has a new uh, resonance for me as we as we move through this really trying period for the church, that Jesus really does enter into that experience of victimhood, of being an innocent one who suffers unjustly uh, at the hands of wicked men. He stands in complete solidarity to those that have been violated. Uh, but we don't say that that that's a total loss, right? That, right. that um, through his father's faithfulness, by clinging to his father, through all of that, uh, he is brought to the resurrection and we're brought with him. Um, and every, every sin that's been committed against us and every sin that we commit can some can be bound up into that and redeemed by him. Um, again, that's not something that we could just do, right? Right. And this is you know this is a process. There's healing takes time, um, but I think the essential is there, right? To keep our eyes on Christ and not try to not delude ourselves into thinking we can make a solution if we just get the if we just get the procedure right, if we just get the protocol right, if we just if we just get you know just make sure justice is done that's not going to bring about the kind of resurrection that's needed for those who have suffered or the resurrection we need as a church yeah i think that's powerfully put i like you know one of the things you said earlier 
I think it's an important kind of caveat here. Is like, by all means, we need to take a hard look at the procedures. We need to see what needs to be done here. But that's just not an. It's not that it shouldn't happen. It's that it's just not enough. It's right. You know, so it's not an either or question, but it is a question in some ways of what is our focus? Is our focus on just like we need to try harder, or is our focus more of a radical abandonment to Christ? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, in terms, I guess you could sort of put the question of what what can we do how can we as you know ordinary catholics somehow help this situation say there's a person you know you're not um you haven't experienced this personally the scandal but you want to somehow contribute to the good uh for the church and for the world um you and i are not in a place to advise bishops you know um nor are probably most of the listeners but we can be a part of the solution right if we if we consistently look to christ um in our own lives if we can point out places that where where we're confident he's alive he's here uh, that is an encouragement and a help to anybody who is more personally suffering uh, because it's his response that changes everything his presence that changes everything yeah i mean if you look back through history and the great scandals in the world and in the church uh just to take two like the roman empire was in some ways uh worse than modern culture in terms of like certainly exposing children to be di- to to die on the hills if they weren't you know strong and those kind of practices of just like open infanticide was just sort of shrugged off the christian response to that of just kind of loving and treating life especially the most vulnerable life with dignity had a profoundly transformative effect that i imagine the people who did it had no idea Oh, yeah, the, the greatest, strongest empire in the world is going to be impacted by my small, private, personal witness. We can't name you the people who did this. Right. But we know in the course of world history that it helped lead to, like, the conversion of the empire. Not through force, but just through profound personal witness. Yeah. But that's in the world, in the church. Uh, take something like uh, the Arian controversy, or one of these big theological controversies, where it seemed like the bishops... Uh, no small number of them uh, had become heretical or had wandered off of the path of true faith and orthodoxy. And the quiet, orthodox, faithful response of the people uh, persevering in the face of, of what would probably be a pretty dark situation, a situation where you'd want to despair. Um, I don't know, it's, it's a powerful witness. You know, we speak of, you know, there's that phrase, Athanasius contra mundum, mm-hmm. Athanasius against the world. But the truth is that Athanasius stood almost alone among bishops fighting for orthodoxy, but he was aided by a lot of the laity. He was aided by a lot of people who just like continued to believe what they'd always believed, rather than this theological newfangled nonsense. Sure. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, sure. because we don't have the power in the worldly sense, we don't have power in the ecclesial sense, but we do have the ability to trust Christ who does have all power and dominion. Yeah. Yeah. What you're saying... Uh points to something that we have to hope in and trust is that God raises up saints. Yeah. Right. That's the, that was his response to the evil of the Roman empire, that the, the Roman martyrs, you know, the early Christians that, that witnessed to, to God completely, um, with their lives. And, uh, and then the response to the Arian crisis in the fourth century, um, he raised up saints again, the, mm-hmm. kind of your, your run of the mill, ordinary faithful who stayed faithful the apostles teaching uh and and heroes like athanasius of alexander 
and uh, later the Cappadocian fathers, um, St. Anthony of the Desert, who was, and his monks that, that assisted Athanasius and really rooted for him. Um, so how do you respond to the scandal? Be a saint. Yeah. Be uh, a saint, which isn't a project, but it's, it's uh, really embrace your poverty and the ways that Jesus is trying to save you. So to the listener who's saying, how do I embrace my poverty? I think we've gotten more specific, more concrete, but can we take it another step forward and say, here's something, even saying something you can do seems kind of right, right. paradoxical. But I can talk about how it happens in my own life. Yeah. That... Um, it's, it's always in relationship. Um, it's always in friendship with others, with, uh, with brother priests, with Good, fr- good friends that I that I live Christian friendships and and uh, try to live Christian community with um, because it's in living with others that we experience oftentimes our brokenness right yeah you uh, you think you're pretty good until you get married or you start to live <laughs> with somebody else and you're like oh I'm yeah. actually really you just spent selfish. a day with my wife and me so that's you right can, you I have lots of firsthand that. examples that, <laughs> yes um, yeah, but it's 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 in living with others a lot of time that we run into our limits, right? Yeah. You just find that you you can't not get frustrated at a person. Yeah. But you but you do over and over again. Or you uh, you know that you should be better, but you just can't. You know you should be kinder, but you just you just aren't. You can't bring yourself to it. Um, that's a place where you experience your poverty, but you can also experience uh, gratuitousness, like the experience of being loved when you don't deserve it. Yeah. Uh, that's an amazing witness that speaks about the presence of another, right? A greater love who's with us, who's loving us. Uh, forgiveness, experiencing Christian forgiveness, even in the sim- simple form of in the home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if forgiveness, if, if families aren't living Christian forgiveness there in their own homes, then how can we expect to witness to that and to, to see that happening in a broader scale in the church? Uh, it's Christ that brings about forgiveness that makes it possible, right? And so the simple act of forgiving your spouse after they've been unreasonable or asking for forgiveness when you've been um, snotty, right? Yeah. Uh, and then accepting and receiving that forgiveness, thats that testifies to his presence, right? Yeah, it seems like one of the most profound spiritual crises that I see, I'd be curious as to your experience with this, is our unwillingness to accept the gratuity of the gift hmm. to either think that we can earn it or um, to want to reject it because we can't to say, I'm not good enough to be a Catholic. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I'm not good enough to be a son or a daughter of the father because I've done X, Y, and Z. And because I continue to fall because I continue to struggle. Uh, but to not just to not accept the gratuity of the gift to not accept the fact that like, yeah, you're not like God doesn't love you because you're so good, but because he's so good. Mm-hmm. That, that notion is something that I think we really struggle to accept. Yeah. yeah. There's, yeah, there's sort of this, this misconception in there, uh, that, that Christianity is for good people. Right. That really, and, and it's precisely that notion that makes abuse and these things so scandalous. Yeah. Right. Right, um, because if you know if if uh, if this automatically makes us good, or if we're Christian, if we're Catholic, because we're good people, 
then how the heck do you wind up with what you see in the news? So right. I was just having coffee uh, two days ago with a guy who was saying that he'd grown up going to Catholic school and going to Mass on Sundays. But every homily seemed to be some variation of, well, the moral of this story is be a nice person. Mm-hmm. And he found it so unconvincing and rendered Christianity so irrelevant. Like, if Christianity is just be a nice person, you don't need it. Like, you you know, you can try to be a nice person without Christianity. Now, you're not going to do a great job with or without uh, being a Christian. You're going you're gonna to fall either way. But if, if all it is is just this kind of dry moralism, right? But I think that has been so much the message that has been associated with the church in the past several decades, at least, that when it turns out a lot of priests and bishops and cardinals aren't nice people, that they do sin, that they, you know, do make horrible failings, well, then it's like, well, if this whole, whole thing's a program to just make me nice, right? it doesn't seem right. to be working. Yeah, if our message is be good, and that's it. And that's then, it, right. Then obviously, let, let's pack it all up and, and go home. Um, because there are other ways and there are better ways probably to do that. I think Oscar right. Wilde said that it's a church for sinners and saints for respectable people Anglicanism will have to do. Uh, <laughs> but we think we've, we've presented yeah. this Catholicism of respectable people. I think that's, yeah, I think that's that's true. Um, whereas what's what's our message at the heart? That we're broken, that we're sinful, and one has come to us who has saved us and continues to save us. Uh, that needs to be the primary message and and it needs to be witnessed to in the way that we live like like i said like we've spoke about gratuitousness forgiveness charity uh and i think any any moralizing uh, without a real attachment to christ uh, is going to really fall short and sound hollow in the wake of the scandal and in that way i think we can see this as an opportunity for the church um, to be purified not so much in you know in her people or her priests i I think that that all will happen as well but especially in what we place our trust in um, and what we uh what we believe we're about here yeah you know there's that line in the psalms put not your trust in princes yeah yeah and even princes of the church exactly even princes of the church uh it's so remarkable because it's, that's the easiest place to put your trust in a worldly sense. Sure. sure. And you think, well, I'm not trusting in the world. I'm trusting in God. You're trusting in visible representations. You're trusting in the visible representatives of the church. Uh, and not just in the way Christ promised, you know, like with the infallibility of the church. But in a, it can easily morph into something more uh, more human than that, if you know what I mean. That you can, you can trust the pastor that you like to be just like the rock mm-hmm. or you can, you know, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes his own human failings are going to get in the way. Right. Right. And if that that's, be... if that's as deep as it goes, then the first time he hates father's having a bad morning and snaps at you, your faith is going to crumble. Yeah. I actually, I know a case of a guy in St. Louis who almost exactly that thing happened. Mm-hmm. He was what he thought was a very good Catholic. He was, I think an altar server. He was very involved in like church ministries and there was a new priest and the priest was snappy with him and I think was just rude to him. And the guy left the church over it. Mm, sure. And sure. that's such a a crazy reaction from the outside. But it gives you maybe a little sense into what that spirituality might have looked like and how easy it is to fall into the trap where we think we're trusting in God, really just trusting in <laughs> the niceness or even moral goodness 
of of the representatives of the church, and that is an unsafe right. foundation. Right. Yeah, this uh, I know we're kind of ranging all over things right now, but but it, it makes me think of the way that God educates us, uh, and it's by means of signs. It's by means of a, of a human presence, right? Of course, Christ comes to us as a human being. That's how God enters into our lives. And he always enters our lives through human realities, but but the human realities that point to him are, are pointers, they're signs, right? So the, the, the pastor who's really good uh, and loves you and is great at his parish, right? He's a sign of the love of God for his church, mm-hmm. right? The way that you're, that you're treated, you know, by the staff at a good Catholic hospital, um, different these different human encounters uh, remind us of God, point us to God, even give us an experience of God, but they remain signs. Uh, and and if we absolutize them, I think you're saying, then then we can, uh, then we'll, I mean, we can wind up like the, the gentleman you spoke about who left yeah. the church. I mean, it, right? It's everything. Like, you know, right. Father, Aquinas will tell us that Father is a term that belongs most properly to God. And secondarily, the human fathers, that every father is a father analogous, he would say. Like, your fatherhood should remind, spiritual or biological, should remind your children of the fatherhood of God. But your fatherhood is radically insufficient relative to the fatherhood of God. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you have to be able to view it almost like an icon. Uh, This is a representation of something bigger than itself. But if you reduce it to something, if you turn the icon into a wall rather than a window, um, then you fail to see the reality behind it. Or through right. It. Yeah, I like that an icon. Um, you know, one of the one of the priests who's very instrumental in my own life and and vocation uh, ended up leaving the priesthood, and uh, and it wasn't related to abuse. Uh, it wasn't related to abuse of minors or, or anything, but, um, but I thank God that in the sort of intervening years, my years of seminary, but, uh, God had brought me to a place where I, I started to recognize him as the giver of all good gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that by the time this happened, I was in a place where I was, I was disturbed by it, but it didn't, it didn't deeply shake me. It didn't make me question my own vocation uh, because i could see well it was it was him working in my life through people but people who remain sinful and fallible yeah in a way it sounds like you're almost describing uh the ascent or the ladder of loves that plato describes in this symposium where you have these like earthly experiences of love and through them you can get to love of god but all of those but in a deeper way like these are manifestations of grace and these are manifest like God works through them. It isn't just, oh, well, I love this, and it's sort of like my love of that. But it's actually like God is working through all of those sure, things. Sure, sure, sure. And we just have to keep this. climbing up that ladder. Because I imagine, like early on, this priest probably had an outsized role for you, and that's normal and natural and good. You just can't stay there. You right. know what I mean? You got to keep going up that ladder right. and saying, oh, I've experienced God through him, but I can now distinguish between him and God. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I think it's easy yeah. to fall. God is always greater than the reminders of him. God is always greater than the reminders of him. Yeah. Well put. So I think that's at least, uh, I mean, I want to say a silver lining with all of this tragedy in some ways is that some of the rungs of that ladder uh, have been kicked out 
and that's bad and some people have fallen we've also been reminded like oh yeah this is a ladder it isn't a place i'm supposed to just stay forever uh, if i don't keep moving up ever deeper into the love of god then i'll get trapped i mean it's ultimately this is what idolatry is right you take the good things of god and separate them from god mm. right right make them absolutes make them absolutes any advice uh, for listeners as they kind of take take away from this? Like anything they should incorporate into their own life? I mean, we've got to be mindful of your radical dependency of God. Always be kind of looking past the human into the divine. Um, what else can they take from this? Yeah, I think uh, don't be afraid to be real uh, with, especially, you know, if you, if you have listeners that are, trying to live their faith that are people know they're Catholic in the workplace, for example, or in their families. Um, it's going to come up if, if it hasn't already. Uh, don't be afraid to be real, right? And say, you know, say this really bothers you too. Be disturbed. Um, can I make two quick to, points on that? You don't have to be defensive. Yeah. Uh, when people start talking about the church, you can say you're disappointed by the church too. And then you can be reminded and, and speak about why it is you stay. Absolutely. So the two quick points I was going to make. One, doing what you just described takes it from an us versus them sort of encounter into one of compassion. Right. Where they're not just saying, this was a bad thing, and you're saying, it wasn't so bad, which right. is like a terrible thing to <laughs> right. say. You're just saying, it was bad, and now you're united. Right. The two of you together are saying, this was wrong. Because the sin offends God more than it offends either of you. Right. And he's going to suffer, so to speak, in a, a deeper and more profound way. Like Christ weeping, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life, get over it. Uh, or he doesn't say, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's all for a greater good. Don't worry. Like he enters into that suffering without getting defensive, even while both Mary and Martha are saying these things that could easily be taken mm -hmm. as these kind of attacks. And like, why didn't you do anything, God? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so I, I think that yeah, first you don't have to be defensive. You can you can be angry as well, and then in the second step you can you can speak about his presence, which hopefully is the reason that you stay, right? That you have experienced and can and can testify that in spite of everything, Jesus lives in this church like he promised, uh, and he hasn't left it, right? Why haven't I? Uh, why didn't I leave the seminary you know, when, when priests that I saw were, uh, that were, had been important to me were, were going off the rails? Well, because I had, also, I had experienced Christ right? through them sometimes, but, um, but, but not of them. Um, I could say, well, these people came and they shared the gospel with me and it changed my life. And my life got better and I became more free and there was more joy uh, the more that I adhered to, to this life. Right, to the church, and I experienced that Jesus lives here. He saves me, um, and so even when they um, falter or, or don't live up to it, uh, what they were proposing remains true. And so, yeah, don't be defensive. Be compassionate, and speak about Jesus as your reason to to remain in the church that he uh, that he established. Saint Paul speaks of it in terms of treasure we hold in earthen vessels. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable how much scripture is exactly the way you just described. That we want to whitewash everything. Mm -hmm. And Christ refers to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. Mm. They're not authentic. They're not 
who they present themselves as. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Contrast and, that with the apostles. Exactly. Who exactly. were didn't have it all together, who on the outside were very messy. I mean, probably smelled like fish and right. uh, like kept flubbing up. And yet there was this presence of a man who was with them who changed their life. And yeah. they couldn't they they couldn't leave it. They couldn't forget about it. And after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, they couldn't help but speak about him and all the things that, that he had done. You see at once their own limitations mm-hmm. and the way they persevere in the face of their own sin, in the sin of one another. You know, I mean, Judas the Apostle, that is the greatest clerical betrayal. Sure. It's worse in, sure. a, in a way than sure. anything we're dealing with now. Uh He's, he's not just taking advantage of one of the little ones. He's betraying Jesus to the cross. Right. But does it mean that Jesus wasn't real? Right. Does it mean that what had happened uh, to him and the other apostles was was fake? Yeah, I think these are exactly the questions that hopefully they and we can kind of take seriously now and have it lead us into a deeper appreciation of the message. That it isn't just... This is a place for nice people. Mm-hmm. This is a place for broken people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them aren't nice. And without God, a lot of them would be a lot worse. Yeah. Father, <laughs> appreciate having you on. Thanks. Thanks. Do you want to... Kind of a heavy topic, but I'm glad to be able to uh, hopefully um, help some people a little bit long. I know a lot of us struggle. All of us have struggled through this Um but Jesus is alive, he's risen, and uh, and he loves his church. He loves his people. He wants to bring about healing. Beautiful. Can you close this in a prayer? Yeah. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. is an initiative of the Holy Family School Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schoolfaith.com.